Mark Cuban. How you do anything is how you do everything. If you're not, if you don't pay attention to detail on the little things, you're not going to be in the habit of paying attention to detail for the big things. Ken Griffey Jr. Hey, he wears his hat backwards. Well, I wear my hat backwards because my dad had a fro and I wanted to wear his hat. And if I put his hat on at age six and, you know, he's got a eight and a half and I got like a little five, it's not going to really stay on my head. Jeannie Buss. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. It's good to see everybody. John Smoltz. Is if you don't have the imagination and the willingness to fail or not being afraid to fail, I don't think you can be truly great. Candace Parker. I have so much hope for this generation coming up that have grown up with women in sports, in leadership roles, on television, speaking about sports, speaking knowledgeably about sports. Pau Gasol. To me, all the work that I've done, all the humanitarian work that I've done has always given me great perspective, has allowed me to keep my feet on the ground and uh, has really put and reminded me what's truly important. Damian Lillard. That was for Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) Just to name a few. Welcome to Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger. Well, thanks for joining us on this edition of Sports Business Radio. John Wetzel, longtime NBA coach, former NBA player, as well as Virginia Tech Basketball Hall of Famer. He's joining me on this week's show. Wetzel served as a coach for the NBA's Phoenix Suns, Portland Trailblazers, New Jersey Nets, Golden State Warriors, and Sacramento Kings. He was a player with the NBA's Los Angeles Lakers, Phoenix Suns, and Atlanta Hawks. Wetzel discusses the highlights of his lengthy coaching career, working alongside head coaches John McLeod and Rick Adelman. The Trailblazers teams that advanced to the NBA Finals and featured Clyde Drexler and Terry Porter in 1990 and 92. And those standout Sacramento Kings teams that came close to reaching the NBA Finals that featured Chris Webber, Vladi Divac, Mike Bibby, Jason Williams, and, and others. Wetzel also discusses his Hall of Fame college career at Virginia Tech and playing on the same Lakers team with Jerry West and Elgin Baylor. Also, he played with Pistol Pete Maravich on the Atlanta Hawks. So if you're a fan of 1970s to 1990s NBA basketball, you're going to love this conversation. I've known Wetzel since I was a young boy, as his son Mark is one of my best friends. John Wetzel is one of my favorite people in all of the world. So this was a fun conversation that we got to have in person. I think you're going to enjoy it. I'm joined by Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you? I'm doing good. And I mean, Wetzel is like, grab a little, you know, glass of sipping whiskey, sit back and enjoy the stories. I mean, he has always got good storytelling. And uh, I mean, just the list you just named off the players he's played with and coached with the teams he's been a part of. I mean, just like the resume book is just continuing. And uh, he's a great storyteller and has some great, great, uh, you know, throwback stories. So I love it. Well, I'll tell you what, our audience is not going to believe what he signed for as a rookie with the Lakers. So <laughs> stay tuned for that, but it's going to blow you away. I mean, we look at these contracts today yeah, and you basically get a million dollars for warming up <laughs> and being in the layup line before the game. <laughs> and when you hear what he signed for, for an entire season, you're going to go, what? How is that even possible? But, uh, you know, look, he got to play in the NBA and he played, like I said, with Jerry West and Elgin Baylor and pistol Pete Maravich and, just some great stories. So I would put this conversation in the same category as when I had Paul Westhead on, who coached the Lakers to an NBA championship. Uh, Chip Schaefer, who 
won many rings with the Bulls and the Lakers. Like this is stories galore. It's old school NBA basketball. These are teams that so many people remember that he was a part of. So it's a fun conversation. All right, let's get to some headlines before we get to the conversation with John Wetzel. Griggs, it's the NFL playoffs. We're down to the final four in the NFC. It's the 49ers at the Eagles for the NFC championship in Philadelphia. In the AFC, it's the Bengals at the Chiefs in the AFC championship. Both games are this Sunday. Four marquee teams remain, which is great for the potential Super Bowl matchups. You've got Patrick Mahomes, Joe Burrow, Christian McCaffrey, Travis Kelsey, and Jalen Hurts. Just a few of the big names remaining. I'm going to put you on the spot right here. Sure. Who's making the Super Bowl? Well, I was just thinking about that this morning because as of now, we don't really know if Mahomes is going to play. And if he does, he won't be 100%. But I think if Mahomes is out, I think Joe Burrow runs the Chiefs crazy and wins that one easily. If Mahomes plays, it's going to be a competitive game. But again, if he can't move, I still have Cincinnati winning that game. So I think since he's going to win in, in KC and then I'm going with Niners, I'm West Coast boy. How do you vote against the undefeated, you know, Purdy? I mean, the guy's still playing on his mind, Christian McCaffrey, and that defense is unreal. So I've got Niners and Cincy in the Super Bowl. Do you want me to call the winner or are we going to wait for that? Let's wait for that. Okay. Let's let's wait for that. But that would be a rematch of like long ago. Right. Those two teams met long ago for the Super Bowl. Um, I'm going to go Philadelphia. Okay. I think they've been the most impressive team in the NFL this year. Um, what we saw them do against the Giants was just a clinic. I mean, Jalen Hurts, when he's healthy, and he's running that offense and the schemes that they're running and the weapons that he has, and they're at home. Um, I, I think Philadelphia wins that game. I do think it's going to be a close game, but I'm going to go with Philadelphia. And then I got to tell you, I can't go against Joe Burr. Yeah. I mean, this guy at LSU was money. No one thought the Bengals were going to get to the Super Bowl last year, which was really his first healthy year because he tore his knee his rookie year. I can't bet against him. I mean, you bet against him at your own peril. He's he's taken down Josh Allen. He beat Mahomes last year. I think Mahomes' ankle is going to give him problems um, in Kansas City and in that cold. So I've got a Philadelphia-Cincinnati Super Bowl in Arizona on February 12th. And uh, I think that would be a, a great matchup. I won't be surprised if the Chiefs and the Niners you know, win respectively. But if you're asking me to put my money where my mouth is, I'm going Eagles and I'm going Bengals to get to the Super Bowl. I like it. So we got some differing opinions there, but I think uh, that makes it fun. And, uh, you know, I mean, hey, in our in our lovely uh, fantasy with underdog, I picked my, my boy DK Metcalf to go all the way and that didn't work so well. So I you probably might have a little better insight on this, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, we'll see. So here's the thing that's interesting is usually at this point of the season, even the final four, there's a team that's head and shoulders above the rest that is the favorite in Vegas. Right now, here are the Super Bowl odds of the final four teams. Eagles, plus 260. Chiefs, plus 260. Bengals, plus 275. San Francisco, plus 275. Basically, the same odds for four teams remaining. And it's anyone's ballgame at, at this point as to who wins this thing those odds are according to caesars but uh griggs this thing's up for grabs 
Yeah, I think uh, it's fun watching the odds now between now and February 12th, how that kind of it'll start to fluctuate a little bit, go up and down a little bit after these games, especially Sunday. But uh, yeah, I think it's fun having four, you know, fresh teams. It's fun having four, uh, you know, just exciting teams, good defenses, great quarterbacks, good offenses. You got some running quarterbacks in there, too. I think it's I mean, the two games this weekend are must watch. And I'm looking forward to the big day on February 12th. All right. A few other nuggets. 34 million people tuned in to watch the Chiefs and Jaguars on NBC. It was the most watched Saturday NFL playoff game in eight years. So big, big numbers. I mean, 34 million, the NBA finals, the World Series, they dream of those numbers. This was for the divisional round. And again, I think most people who listen to this show know the Super Bowl attracts over 100 million viewers. So um, these are huge numbers that any TV network would love to have the matchup between Jalen Hurts and Brock Purdy in the NFC championship game, Griggs youngest combined age ever in a conference championship game in NFL history. So you've got two really young quarterbacks matching up. Like you said, they've got great defenses behind them, but very young so far. Each one is, you know, had a great season, but the pressure is really on now to get to the Super Bowl. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if age comes into play in the conference championship and ultimately in the Super Bowl. Another note, the NFL has to refund over 50,000 ticket purchases for the what could have been Buffalo Bills, Kansas City Chiefs AFC championship game, which would have been played on a neutral field in Atlanta where the Falcons play. But since Joe Burr took down the Buffalo Bills, that's all out the window. So as he said in his post-game interview, I guess we've got some refunds to issue <laughs> if you're the NFL. So I think he took great joy in uh, you know, axing those plans and heading to Kansas City for the AFC championship. But uh kind of a logistics nightmare. You know, you had to get the field in Atlanta and all the planning and selling the tickets and all this stuff, and it turns out it's all for naught. Yeah, you know, that's just that was an interesting storyline having that on the line. And I think uh, Burrow was definitely upset that he, you know, they were kind of an underdog. I mean, I think the the media and everybody else was kind of planning on that Atlanta game and then, hey, didn't happen. So I, I loved his post game, you know, quick and short little uh, tidbits, but he, he nailed it. Get the refunds ready. I love that. All right. In today's day and age, most teams try and treat their players really well, you know, whether it's because. Uh, you want them to play well for you or you want them to resign with you as a free agent, you're going to go out of your way to treat your own players very well. You see these elaborate practice facilities, perks for the players. Something happened after Sunday's Cowboys Niners game that blew me and a lot of other people away. And you may say this isn't that big of a deal, but it's one of the most classless things I've seen a sports franchise do in a long time. Right after the game, the Dallas Cowboys tweet this out, Griggs. Dak Prescott gave away the ball twice in the narrow loss to the 49ers in a matchup the Cowboys had a chance to win if they didn't again generate self-inflicted wounds. Now, I'd expect this from Skip Bayless or Stephen A. Smith or you know any of the pundits in the media. From your own team? Your own social media team. And as of right now, when we're recording this, which is roughly 24 hours after the post was initially put out, it's still up. 
you would think someone in PR or player relations would go, oh my God, like who in the world on the social media team tweeted that out and made Dak look bad? Like take that down right away. Nope, still up. So tone deaf and classless, that's the Dallas Cowboys. Dak Prescott, remember, Walter Payton, man of the year, class act. Yeah, he didn't have a great game, but you throw your own player under the bus on social media from your team account. Griggs, I have no words. Yeah, that was ugly. And look, football is a team, big time team sport. You can't blame yeah. it on one person. And I mean, what about what's his name? Maher that missed four extra points. We didn't get a tweet about that after the game because they won. But it's like, yeah, I mean, I, when I saw that, too, I'm like, this is this really? Yeah. Checkmark Dallas Cowboys. They're what? I just I couldn't believe it either. It's just horrible. Well, as I tweeted out, that's the kind of stuff that Dak, that his teammates and the potential free agents, they pay attention to that. They will remember this tweet and they will remember that it wasn't taken down and they're going to go, I don't know if I want to play for that kind of organization. And yeah, you can say, oh, well, as long as the Cowboys offer the most amount of money, the players will play anywhere. Maybe. But I think people are going to remember that tweet and how classless it was and how they threw Dak, who's a, a good human being and, um, you know, face of that franchise under the bus on their own team social media platform. So shame on you, Dallas Cowboys, for doing that. And I hope there are other teams out there that took note and don't do the same thing to their player if their player has a poor performance and they're eliminated from the playoffs. Well, yeah, and it's just like you mentioned, too. Maybe they tweet it out and then they're like, oh, crap, that's stupid. Take it down. Nope, it's still floating out there. They just like, oh, yeah. we're owning it. And that's that's even makes it worse. I think it's like pouring salt in the wound. Like, oh, we don't care. We left it. We're going to keep it going. Yeah. All right. Other headlines. Total Major League Baseball player compensation reached new heights in 2022. Payments to players top $5 billion for the first time reaching $5.2 billion. That's up from $4.5 billion the year before. The Dodgers had the biggest payroll. Um, they had a $32.4 million luxury tax bill. Um, the record payroll total corresponded with a record revenue year for Major League Baseball, which brought in $10.8 billion in 2022. Don't forget, they had new media deals with Fox, TBS, and ESPN that brought in $1.8 billion. They had sponsorship deals that added another $1.2 billion. So um, look, as much as I'm critical of Major League Baseball for some of the knucklehead things that they do, they are doing really well with their revenue. And you've got teams spending money on players and teams like the Mets and the Dodgers and a few others who are willing to go into the luxury tax to uh, pay to try and win championships. So uh, all in all, Major League Baseball is trending in the right direction when it comes to revenues and what they're paying their players. Well, we saw, I've seen uh, many big contracts this season. I mean, a couple of big, you know, 250, 275 range contracts, long contracts, long years that we've talked about on past shows. But yeah, can you imagine getting that luxury tax bill, 32.4 million? Ouch. But I mean, it's good. Like you said, baseball, we need to keep it relevant. It needs to keep, uh, you know, keep being one of the majors. If they want to keep being in the top, you know, three, four major platforms out there for sports, they got to keep spending some money and seeing this uh, go up is good. 
I'm not quite sure because I don't have it in front of me, but I think the luxury tax bill for the Dodgers, that 32 point whatever million, may have been more than the entire team payroll of the Kansas City Royals. <laughs> Probably. I mean, think about that. Yeah. That's that's amazing. Crazy. You you truly have the haves and the have nots in Major League Baseball. Um, okay. More news. I think I told our audience in December I played pickleball for the first time ever. I loved it. I played it for eight hours at my buddy's house. It was amazing. It's the fastest growing sport in America. 36 and a half million people in the U.S. play. So growing quickly. Well, guess what, Griggs? They've got a TV deal. The Association of Pickleball Professionals announced TV deals with CBS and ESPN. The tour announced on Monday. So Griggs, not only are people like us out there playing pickleball, but now you can watch it on TV. Would you watch pickleball on TV? I totally would. I've played it many times. Uh, every summer, my family and we go to a Blackbeat Ranch over here in Oregon, Central Oregon, and they actually installed like five pickleball courts, legit, like full of the nets and the court lines and everything. And it's great. It's it's also got one of that iconic sound of the mallet hitting the ball, which is just like when you hear it, you know, it's pickleball. But yeah, I'm watching because it's actually surprisingly a good workout too, because the ball doesn't bounce like a tennis. So you've got to really move around a lot and get close to the net and hit it down. It's It's a fun game to play. I'd have to get sign off from my neighbors because of the noise yeah. the ball makes. <laughs> but I'm kind of toying with the idea. I've got some room in my yard. I'm, I'm kind of toying with the idea of maybe installing a pickleball court in, in my backyard. Griggs, we could do podcasts yeah. there. We could play pickleball. Yep. We could have our buddy Brad Kinzer come over uh what do you think pickleball oh, yeah. in the in the burger backyard there you go summer afternoon get some barbecue some steaks burgers going play you know have a little brew i'm down let's go i think in oregon though we'd have to it'd have to be like wimbledon we'd have to have like a covered roof <laughs> yeah, there you go <laughs> for the pickleball court because it'd be raining like yes. nine months of the year mm -hmm. so maybe a retractable roof I like it. No budget. Don't we don't. We got it all. Yeah. If, if there's anyone out there that uh, does retractable roofs for pickleball courts, <laughs> let us know. You can add us at SB Radio on Twitter and uh, let us know about that. But uh, yeah, and and by the way, I think I've talked about this with a lot of friends. Um, whoever invents a dense pickleball ball that doesn't make noise <laughs> is going to make like eight trillion dollars. So that's the other challenge I have for our audience is invent a pickleball ball that doesn't make noise and you're going to be a gazillionaire. So um, let's see if anyone does that. All right. A big announcement coming up very soon on Sports Business Radio. It's really a game changer for our podcast and, and what we do. So um, hopefully that's going to be next week. Might be the week after, but it is a game-changing announcement for us, one that I've just been incredibly excited about. So uh, we'll talk about that coming up on a near-future edition of Sports Business Radio. But coming up next, John Wetzel. If you love 1970s to 1990s NBA basketball, there's some legendary stories here. He played with... Jerry West, Elgin Baylor, Pistol Pete Maravich. He coached Clyde Drexler and Terry Porter. He coached Chris Weber, Vlade Divac. Just some really exciting teams. 
I think you're going to enjoy the NBA stories. That's coming up next with John Wetzel. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. When it comes to your health and longevity, you hold nothing back. You understand what it means to push harder, reach farther, and go the extra mile. This relentless drive runs in your blood. That's why Inside Tracker provides you with a personalized plan to build strength, speed recovery, and optimize your health for the long haul. Created by leading scientists in aging, genetics, and biometrics, Inside Tracker analyzes your blood, DNA, and fitness tracking data to identify where you're optimized and where you're not. You'll get a daily action plan with personalized guidance on the right exercise, nutrition, and supplementation for your body. And when you connect Inside Tracker with your Fitbit or Garmin, you'll also unlock real time recovery pro tips after you complete your workout. It's like having your own personal trainer and nutritionist in your pocket. For a limited time, you can get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. Just go to insidetracker.com forward slash SBR. That's insidetracker.com forward slash SBR. Now, back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. All right. Well, this conversation has been a long time in the making. Uh, I've been doing Sports Business Radio for 19 years, and uh, we should have done this one a long time ago. John Wetzel, Virginia Tech Basketball Hall of Famer, former NBA player, selected in the eighth round of the 1966 NBA draft by the Lakers. He also played with the Suns and the Hawks. Longtime NBA assistant coach with the Suns, Trailblazers, Nets, Warriors, and Kings. Father-like figure to me for many years. I'm glad we're having this conversation. John, how are you? I'm doing fine today, Brian. I appreciate you having me on. And as I would say, better late than never. Better late than never. All right. So when you were drafted in 1966, how much was the pay as a rookie? Well, we didn't make enough money to retire on. Uh, my first contract as a rookie was uh, $11,000. <laughs> <laughs> and that wasn't per game. That was for the whole season. And, uh, you know, I think the first round pick, uh, Jerry Chambers from Utah, I think he made $12,000. And I don't know what uh, guys like uh, Jerry West and Elgin Baylor made. I would s- suggest in the vicinity of, Fifty to seventy-five thousand. So, I mean, I know this was nineteen sixty-six, and things were less expensive back then. But how do you live on eleven thousand dollars a year? Well, the whole cost of living was w- way, way less than it is today. I think my apartment on the outskirts of Los Angeles was—I uh, think it was ninety-five dollars a month. So <laughs> it, it's all relative, and yeah. made less money, but everything was so much less expensive than it and than in today's world. Okay. With the Lakers, you played with Jerry West and Elgin Baylor, right? Mm-hmm. What was it like playing with, uh, you know, two hall of famers? Well, my rookie year, I, I matter of fact, uh, Jerry broke his wrist before the season started just the week before we started. And I actually started the first 12 games of the season in his place. Once he got healthy, Came back, I played very little. I was just a bench player. You know, I was feeling my way along. It was it was uh, a beautiful experience to play with those two guys. You know, I used to watch them on the floor and watch uh, Jerry especially play 42, 44 minutes, get 35 to 40 points, 
and then do it again tomorrow night. You know, we didn't have uh, a lot of days where you had mandatory days off. We would play sometimes two, sometimes three games in a row. And I, I was amazed and fascinated that he and uh, Elgin could play so many minutes back to back to back. And it was really a, a great learning experience for me. And I knew coming out of college after watching this, that for me to play more and to survive in the NBA, I had to get in better shape. When you look at comparable players of today's era, or even the last 20 years, who's Jerry West's comp and who's Elgin Baylor's comp? That's that's a hard question. You know, you look at uh, Elgin was a small forward. He's 6'5", average double figures, scoring double figures, rebound. Uh, I don't know who would be in his in his uh, category. You look at LeBron. Of course, LeBron is six eight, right? And he's much bigger, much better conditioned. Uh, and I think that it, it would be a little bit of a comparison there uh, with Jerry. I, I'm not so sure that anybody. The thing that about Jerry that I really respected, he played both ends of the floor. He was a great offensive player, but he had great instincts defensively. He had long arms, would get his hands on a lot of passes, def- get deflections, the things that uh, don't go into stat sheet. Uh, I'm not sure who I would compare today to him. Some of the other players of your era that stood out, I mean, Wilt, right? Yeah, Wilt was playing. Uh, as a matter of fact, I played with the Lakers the year before Wilt got traded to the Lakers. And when I was in Phoenix in 19, I think it was 70, 71, the Lakers won 33 in a row. And uh, our team, the Suns, we were victim twice to the Lakers in that streak. And it, it, was, it was no contest for that long period of time. They were so good. And uh, incidentally, the streak began. Elgin retired early that season, and Jim McMillan came in and played his position, and that's when they started that that streak. That I don't know, uh, I don't know how they they did it, but every game went their way, and they they were such a good uh, defensive team that it was they were really hard to beat that for that stretch, and uh, it's fun to be part of it. So I've had Paul Westhead on, former NBA coach, and. He talked about how there were Laker practices on the asphalt in Los Angeles because there was no practice facility. There was no gymnasium available to them. When you were with the Lakers or just a player uh, in the NBA, what were those conditions like when you practiced? Well, they were primitive at best. Uh, You know, when I was with the Suns, we would practice at, St. Mary's High School a lot, you know, a small gym, and it was hot in there, no air conditioning. And uh, uh, I think all the teams had to had to scrounge around to find a practice facility. Nobody had their own uh, practice gym or their own weight room or their own uh, massage therapist. It, it's, none of that was, was in existence. We had one coach. When I played for the Lakers, we had Butch Van Bredikoff. And he was the only coach. He ran the whole practice by himself. He didn't have a whole bunch of assistants sitting behind the bench during the game. And uh, it was different. We, uh, we flew commercial. 
We flew, and as a matter of fact, my rookie year, we flew in coach. We would go from Los Angeles to Boston or Los Angeles to New York, and you got these seven foot guys sitting in the back and making the best of it. And there was no discussion about, well, we have to fly first class. That was just a fact of life. And uh, it, it was the way it was. And it, I'm not saying it was better, it was harder. But it, today, if a player or a team had to do that, I think there might be a riot. I think you're right. And then, like, people are sparking up on the plane back then on TWA, right? Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was, uh, not a pretty sight when the, the, you, you take off and they turn on the, uh, turn off the seatbelt sign and, you know, uh, the front third of the airplane f- fires up a cigarette. And it's, it, it's, there was no division between smoking and no smoking. The only defense you had was to open the, uh, the, the air from the, top of the airplane hope to blow it away yeah uh the relationship between players and the media back when you played you know now there's such a division it seems like back then from the stories i've heard you know you're going out and having dinner maybe having a beer it was a much different relationship back then is that right yeah it was you know the each team had a one or two beat writers that would travel and when we flew commercial they would just get booked on the same flights and uh it was different because, you know, you may give them they uh, give them a ride to the hotel. You may give them a ride to the game. And uh, it, was, it was more of a personal relationship among the, the, the players and the press. And it, it, generally, it, was, it worked out good. It was, it was uh, a good situation. You knew what the writers were about. They knew what you were about. And there was, there was no uh, – spying on the players, trying to get a, a scoop or trying to get a story maybe a little bit out of line. And it was a lot different, a lot different. You looked at the media in a, in a different vein and, uh, you know, general, generally the relationships are pretty good. Mm-hmm. One of my earliest sports memories is, I think it was the 1976 NBA Finals, Suns, Celtics, and the shot heard around the world. And in that game, you know, you're on the bench as a player. Pat Riley, I think, is mm-hmm. on the bench as a player. John McLeod is coaching the Suns. Uh, Tommy Heinsohn, I think, is coaching the Celtics. You've got John Havlicek, Dave Cowens, JoJo White. But it's one of the greatest games ever played. If you have a chance to watch it on YouTube, audience, go watch that game. Was it game four or five? Do you remember? It was uh it was game five, game in, five. in Boston. Uh, we had, uh, Boston had won the first two games. We go to Phoenix. We had won the second two games and go back to Boston and lose game five. And uh, it was a triple overtime game. And it, we were, after the game, we were just emotionally spent. And we go back to Phoenix for game six. And we the Suns couldn't muster enough energy to get over the hump and, and Boston wins in six, but it was a great game. And uh, people today still talk about it. a lot of people have watched it, as you said, and uh, it was a terrific, terrific back and forth. And uh, they made plays. Paul Westfall made a play. Uh, they uh, have a check when made a, a runner going to his left, which he never used his left hand, but this time he did. Garfield heard makes the shot to tie. So it was just back and forth and back and forth. And, very emotional uh, ending to the game. 
And the crazy thing is, there's no three-point line back then. So Gar Hurd's shot is a three. It wins the game if there's a three-point line. I'm sure you could go back earlier in the game and find other plays that might have been three-pointers if there had been a line. Yeah, it, it, it could have been. But, you know, as, as you say, there was no such thing. Uh, but it, you played, uh, you know, every shot was a two-point shot. So uh, it, it was just – it was a terrific – to be part of that, even though I never got in the game and I observed from the bench, but uh, one of my great memories. Um, how bad was the Boston Garden locker room? I, I've heard all the stories, the cold water, the rats, the, you know, they make the visitor locker room as bad as possible back in the day. I'm sure it's nicer now. Well, you know, they, I've heard those same stories. I, I don't think it was that bad. I think I can remember going in and, and the, the heat was turned way up. It was hot in the locker room, and we had to open the windows, it was, even though it's the middle of winter, uh, that kind of thing. But, you know, other than that, it was, it was okay. It wasn't as bad as people make it out to be. And, you know, Red Auerbach had a, a bag full of tricks anyway, so probably that, that hot, intense heat could have been Red's uh, turning up the thermostat. All right, so you retire as a player and you transition into coaching. What was it like transitioning from a player to a coach? Well, it's, a, it's different in that your responsibilities are entirely different. When you play, you're responsible for yourself, your conditioning, your attendance uh, on time, you, at practice, at, at the games, uh, on the bus, in the, at the airplane. As a coach, you have uh, you're responsible for the players as well as yourself. You have twelve. We had twelve players on the roster, and uh, you have to uh, make sure that you are, are aware of what uh, their needs are more than yourself. And you obviously cater, and not not necessarily cater, but you. Uh, do the things that you have to do to make them comfortable with the coaching staff and with, with each other. And, and uh, sometimes at, at the level of the NBA, you get, you get some egos involved. You get where two or three players may make uh, butt heads and they don't get along and you have to monitor those situations. But I've often said, if you have a healthy locker room, it's really fun. It's mm-hmm. a lot of fun and guys pull for one another and, and uh, help each other, you know, during the game, everybody gets up and cheers for one another. And if you get a situation like that, the, 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 the uh, business of being in the NBA is a lot of satisfaction, a lot of fun, and uh, there's nothing like it. But if you get a locker room where you have a couple of factions pulling against each other, some people don't want to be coached, and you go to practice and it's like pulling teeth because – a lot of times you, you don't get accomplished what you need to get accomplished to be a, a good team and a cohesive team. Tell our audience about John McLeod. I think he was the first head coach that you were an assistant for when you became an NBA coach, right? Yeah, John, I played for John my last year in 1976. Uh, he was a, a, he came from college, so he had a, a certain amount of spirit about him a certain amount of camaraderie with the players that the the veteran some of the veteran pro coaches kind of didn't 
get involved as much. John was terrific. Uh, he was very well prepared. He, our, his practices were well run. Uh, and, uh, he treated all his players with respect, and he treated people around him with respect. The, the guys that worked in the arena, the guys that uh, turned the lights on, the guys that uh, scorekeepers, and as well as the uh, the president and the general manager. He's obviously those are people you work with, but he treated everybody with respect, and I learned a lot just observing him and. Uh, and he he was terrific. He was he, we be, you know I became an assistant and we became good friends and spent a lot of time together and there for a while we were both running marathons and we did a lot of training together. So I I really got to know him quite well and he was at at the time uh, one of my best friends. You spent many years as an assistant coach. The other head coach that you spent a lot of time with was Rick Adelman, who was just inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. Trailblazers, Warriors, Kings. Those were some great teams that you guys were on. A lot of winning on those teams. Yeah, we had a great run in, in Portland in particular. We were, I was with Rick for six years in Portland. And we went to the finals twice in 1990 against uh, Detroit, 1992 against Chicago. We didn't win a championship, but we were there. And uh, then we uh, had a two-year short stay at Golden State, and then uh, six good years at, at Sacramento. Our Sacramento team was terrific as well. We had a lot of good players, and they wanted to be coached, and uh, they liked each other, so it was a lot of fun. Rick Rick uh, was a player, too. He played d during the time that I did, and uh, when he got a head, the head coach in Portland, he made an interesting statement. He said, I'm I want to coach my players the same way I wanted to be coached as a player. Hmm. In other words, as a player, sometimes you see coaches do things for just to be in control for no reason. And he was very uh, aware of what needed to be done. In other words, if we practice hard, we get our, get our players in shape. And once the season started and your players are playing a lot of minutes, 38 to 40 minutes, well, on the off days, he he would not demand a, a real physical practice. He would say, he said, we've got to have them ready for the game. And that that's the way he coached. And the players really respected him. Uh, Rick was terrific as a coach. He was understated. He never called any attention to himself. And uh, he gave the players the credit. You know, we were good and he would – uh, talk about the players in the media. He would never talk down about the players, but he always built them up and gave them uh, the satisfaction of knowing that he understood how well they played and how hard they played, and he gave them the credit. So with Rick, what were your duties? You know, he's the head coach. What are the duties of the assistant coach? Well, you know, uh, Brian, we didn't have designated titles like defensive coach or, you know, special teams coach and out-of-bounds coaches. We were assistant coaches. And for the most part, uh, I would work with uh, the big guys. You know, during practice, I'd, we had, we'd break down and do our drills. And I'd go down with the big guys. And uh, the other assistant would generally take the guards and the, and the uh, six, seven guys 
on one end and I take the, the centers and, and power forwards on one end. It work on drills, footwork, shooting, and uh, defensive drills. And that's that's generally what what I did. And uh, as well as doing a lot of uh, scouting reports, you know, we at the time, we didn't have a staff of scouts that were dedicated to scouting. Uh, the assistant coaches would take uh, a particular team and do the scouting report. The next game, the other assistant may take and do do the uh, scouting report, but we would alternate back and forth. So that that was a big responsibility, the, the preparation of the team and going through the the opponents and the personnel. We I did a lot of that too. So the Blazers team that you guys coached, uh, Clyde Drexler, Terry Porter, Jerome Kersey, Kevin Duckworth, Buck Williams, Danny Ainge, uh, I think – Drazen Petrovich was on yeah. one of those teams. Um, and then Sacramento had Chris Weber, Vlade, Peja Stojakovic, Hito Turkoglu, uh, Mike Bibby, Jason Williams. I mean, some really talented players on both teams. Is it true, like, you know, you put a, a certain kind of offense in? Like, I guess the question is, were you guys running the same type of system with the Kings that you did with the Blazers? Uh, not necessarily. I think there were some similarities, but in uh, Sacramento, we had our center was such a good passing center, Vladi Divac. And so we used him a lot as a passer. You know, we'd run the, the, the ball through him. And the other players would would make cuts, and he was so good he would he would find them. He was and he was a seven foot guy. He could see over a lot of defenders, and uh, we we specifically used Vladi in a lot of uh, action that would get other uh, Stojakovic and uh, Mike Bibby and get them open for for shots un, uncontested, and and that worked out well for us. In Portland, our center was Kevin Duckworth who was more of an offensive center and he, he played more in the low post and we run, if we ran anything through Kevin it was generally with him in the, in the low post. So he was close to the basket and he could nothing happened on their cuts. He was in a position to make a little uh, turnaround jump shot or turnaround hook shot. So we changed uh, just variation, just not nothing drastic, but uh, we have kind of uh, adapted to who we had. So 1990 NBA Finals, 91, you could argue of the three years, 90, 91, 92, 91 was the best Blazers team, lost in the conference finals to the Lakers, 92 lose to Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Fast forward to 2002, Sacramento Kings play the Lakers in a classic uh, series in the Western Conference Finals. So many like close times to, to winning the ring. Um, but that that 2002 Kings Lakers, I mean, it, it see there were some controversies in that series, but that's one of the best series I've ever watched. Yeah, it was good. We we uh, we played them well. We matched up well, and uh, and uh, we couldn't get over the hump. We had a, a situation that the uh, the game in LA where uh, the free throws. There, there was a big discrepancy in the free throws, and there's a lot of talk about uh, how that game was officiated. And you know, you, it 
you, you learn you can't dwell on those type situations because they don't stop the season or stop the game. You gotta you gotta go on and prepare for the next game. And and uh it was it was tough to take, but uh we had a good had a good season and uh, nothing to be ashamed of. And then like you mentioned 1991 in uh in Portland. That may have been our best team. We, I think, we won the most number of games that year. I think it was sixty plus games. Sixty-three and nineteen, I think it was. Wow! And uh, we just couldn't get by the. We never got by the Lakers. You know, they were always a nemesis, and we play in Sacramento. We're playing in L.A. and right down towards the end of the game, and there's a big scrum for a rebound. Vladi Divac tips it out. You know, clock was running down. There's a few seconds left. He tips it right to Robert Horry, who jumps up and make jumps up and makes a three, and we lose by one. So that that's kind of the way we we played against the Lakers. It seemed like always there was one play or two plays that that hurt us, and we couldn't get by them. When you look back on memorable moments of your career as a player or a coach, what are some of them? Well, I think as a player. My rookie year with the Lakers was such a, you know, even though I didn't play a lot of minutes, it was such a good experience watching good players night after night and being part of that team. You know, we went to the finals against Boston that that first year. Uh, and I think in uh, as, as a coach, uh, uh, probably our team in Portland was the most uh, – most satisfying. Uh, we had some good teams in Phoenix too with Coach McLeod, and uh, same kind of deal. We couldn't get by the Lakers. We we'd play them in the finals of the West, but just it just wasn't meant to be. And Lakers were always a little bit better. And uh, uh, as a player, I think my most uh, well, I played with Pete Maravich in uh, Atlanta too, and that that was an experience wow. playing behind Pete and watching him do his thing. He was probably the best I ever saw with the ball. He was just terrific with the ball. And uh, we, we weren't very good for a couple of years that I was there with Pete, but uh, it was a great experience just to, to be on a team with him. And, uh, and then in Phoenix, we had some very good teams. You know, the, the last year we had uh, Paul Westfall, Alvin Adams, Dick Van Arsdale, uh, uh, Keith Erickson. We had some real quality players and uh, no superstars, just a, a nice blend of talent, but uh, we weren't quite good enough. And, uh, uh, but it, you know, that you can't base your career on how many championships you win. You know, there's only one team that wins every year. Every team that makes the playoffs ends their season with a loss except one, the team that wins a championship. Every other team that's in the playoffs, they end their season with a loss, and they go home, and they don't, they don't feel very good about it. But that's, that's the reality of the NBA. And every year when you start training camp, there, there are great expectations. You're going to do well. You're going to make the playoffs. And, uh, you know, the season plays out as it will. And maybe you're not quite as good as you had hoped to be, or maybe you're a little better than you hoped to be. But there's great anticipation. And uh, there's so many games where you can prove that you're going to uh, be a good team. And sometimes you're not quite so good. And that's that's part of it, too. Yeah. So you retired 
Well, some would say relatively early from coaching and from the NBA. Um, you've thoroughly enjoyed your retirement, splitting your time between Hawaii and Arizona. I've enjoyed the times that we've uh, played golf and, and spent together. But sports is an egotistical business. A lot of people have a hard time walking away. You did it and you're enjoying the fruits of your labor. To all of our listeners out here who may work in sports or who may not know when to walk away, how'd you do it? Well, I, would, I retired just when I turned 60. And uh, I could have continued to, to coach. I would, uh, Rick Adelman asked me, was I sure I wanted to step away? And I think the main reason that I decided to is the, the travel kind of got to me. You know, being on the road 90 days a year or whatever and play a game and you get on the airplane at 1130 at night and you, you travel uh, two hours in the air and you get off and go to the hotel and you play the next night and you play that game and you get back on the airplane and you go someplace else. I had I kind of gotten tired of the lifestyle and uh, I didn't want to work till I couldn't do anything when I retired. And, you know, my wife and I, we enjoy a lot of things. We travel a little bit. Uh, we're active with exercising. We, we paddle outrigger canoes in, in Maui, and uh, we, we really like that. So we, there are a lot of things that we have been able to do, and if I had not retired when I did, I would be too old to start that right mm -hmm. now. But it, it, it worked out well, and... Uh, uh, you know, have good friends in Maui. We have good friends in Tucson, and we we like our lifestyle, and we think it's uh, it fits us perfectly. Our kids are grown, and uh, so we we try to be outdoors and do something active every day. Well, the other thing I've noticed too is all the relationships that you made over the course of your career, who became good friends, whether it was as a player or a coach. Um, you know, there's an opportunity in sports or whatever business you're in to connect with people and, and make friends. And, and you always did a really good job with that. We, you know, I, we say we have good friends in both places. Uh, uh, you know, I've been I'm just thinking I've been retired. Uh, my last year in the league was LeBron's first year. Wow. <laughs> and he's in his 20th year. I've been I retired oh in, in 04. So. Yeah, we we have people that we stay in touch with. So my coaching peers, guys I worked with, I I don't talk to them all the time, but you know, two three times a year, I'll pick up the phone and talk to like Elston Turner, who we worked with in in Sacramento, and he was important for a while. And uh, some of the uh, mostly from Sacramento, and I still have a a couple of people from Phoenix I talk to, and it's 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 fun. I have some peers that live in Phoenix, Tom and Dick Van Arsdale, Jim Fox, uh, Dick Snyder, they all live, they settled in Phoenix and I'm in Tucson. So occasionally we'll get together and, and have dinner or something. And it's, it's fun to see the old guys and tell a few stories. <laughs> as you get older, the stories seem to get better. <laughs> we became better players as we got older. <laughs> I want to go back to Pistol Pete. Because, again, so many people of this era never got to see him play unless it was on YouTube. Um, just a really unique player. But you said you enjoyed playing with him. Try and describe him to our listeners. Pete, Pete Maravich was 
about a, a 6'6 point guard. He was the point guard and ran the team. Uh, he had, like, like I mentioned, he's, his handle was beyond anybody that I've seen. Jason Williams, who we had in Sacramento, would be in his category. But Pete was uh, ran the team and was a, he could have been a great shooter, except I thought he took some tough shots off balance, and you know the, the shot clock runs down, and he'll take a a wild twenty five or thirty footer, and it 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 hurt his percentage. But if he had taken real good shots all the time, he would have been terrific. But uh, he uh, wasn't a, wasn't a great defender. He didn't like to work on that end as well. And I tell people they brought me into Atlanta because Pete played forty five minutes a night. And I would play three. But the next day in practice, Pete would play maybe three, and I'd play 45. <laughs> I was a practice player. <laughs> you were like a stunt double. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, it was okay. It was okay because that was, that's the way I was, what I was expected to do, and I did it. Yeah. All right, last question. Uh, when you go back to Virginia Tech now, again, you're in the Basketball Hall of Fame there, um, just a tremendous player in college. What's it like when you go back? It's it's uh, it's different. The school is about thirty thousand now. I think when I was there in the sixties, it was maybe six thousand, maybe five thousand. Wow! And uh, there's a huge basketball practice facility. There's a huge football practice facility. You know, as as uh, modern conveniences become necessary uh, for recruiting, they they have kept up with the times and. Uh, Occasionally, I go to a game and see. See, we'll have a basketball reunion, and I'll see some of my peers, guys I played with, and uh, some a little younger. But it's it's always fun because, you know, I had good memories back there. That's when I really had a chance to play a lot of minutes, and I was a pretty. I didn't realize it, but looking back, I was I was a pretty good player. I don't like to talk about myself, but you know, I I did some things that were were commendable. I mean, if you made the NBA, you're obviously a yeah, good player. Yeah, yeah, I was, you know, and I, I tell people I was picked in the, you said the eighth round, but there were, there were when I got drafted, there were only eight teams. So I was like pick number 70. You know, today I'd be in this second round pick or something, but there were only 10 teams or eight teams, and then they expanded. They brought Seattle and uh, San Diego in, and then when I went to Phoenix, Phoenix had just been a brand new expansion team. They brought Phoenix and Milwaukee in. So the league expanded and created more jobs, which is good. And now I think it's 30 teams in the league. So there are a lot more jobs and a lot more money for the players, which is good. And, uh, but it was, it was kind of primitive. I, I got drafted by the Lakers and my roommate was a college uh, baseball pitcher. He was a power forward and baseball pitcher. I go to the baseball game and, I think it was April or something, and he comes up to the fence. He said, you, by the way, the Lakers drafted you today. I didn't know. And I said, oh, really? And uh, so I'm living in the dorm and going about it, my business, going to college. I'm mean, going to class, going here and there. And about a week later, I get a phone call. It was from Lou Mose, the general manager of the Lakers, and 
he called me on the dorm phone. I didn't even, you know, we didn't have phones. <laughs> so I had to, the guy came and got me, I had to go answer the phone. And he was telling me about rookie camp, when they were going to have everybody come in. But today it's obviously, a, it's a great, a big show now. And everybody goes to New York. And uh, back then it was a lot, a lot simpler. So you found out a week after you were drafted that you were, you, that's when you got the call. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no urgency to call because I was seventh, eighth round, and, uh, you know, they told me when the first week in June we were going to fly me to Los Angeles, and uh, that's that's the way it worked. And they said you were making $11,000. 11000 yeah. <laughs> After rookie camp, I, they they brought everybody in the room one by one, and they would talk to you, and they didn't know if you are going to get invited back or if you're going to go home. So I go in, and they said, we like what you did. We, we, uh, we want you to come back to – Veterans camp in September or October. I can't remember what, what month. He said, here's your contract for $11,000. No, no agent, no negotiation. But that's the way, every, that's the, way the league was then. And, uh, you know, I talked to other guys that played for different teams. It was pretty much the same all the way around. And then when the ABA came into existence, that's when salaries started going up. They're, you know, they, one would bid against the other. And, the top players were starting to get upwards of 80,000, 100,000. That's when it started uh, increasing. All right. I'm glad we finally did this. I know we need to wrap. Before I let you go, whenever I watched a game, if I heard a whistle, I knew whose <laughs> whistle it was. So we have to end this interview with your whistle. You want me to whistle? Oh, yeah. You gotta, oh, I don't want to break your No, phone. no, no. You got it. This is the best whistle in sports. It's better and if you actually had one of those blow whistles, this gotcha. is, you, you got to end it on, on a whistle. <laughs> All right. How was that? That was good. That All was right. good. All right, John. Thank oh, you so much. Okay, Brian. Thanks for your time. This episode of Sports Business Radio is brought to you by Underdog Fantasy, the fastest growing fantasy app ever released and the official gaming partner of Sports Business Radio. And with early investors like Mark Cuban, Kevin Durant, Adam Schefter, and Jared Goff, I know that Underdog Fantasy is made for people like me who are on the go and want something quick, easy, and fun to play. And today, we've got a special offer for Sports Business Radio listeners. If you sign up to Underdog Fantasy using the promo code SBR, they're going to double your first deposit up to $100. No risk, no long-term commitment, just sign up using promo code SBR and your first deposit is matched up to $100 for free. I already play Underdog Fantasy on the Underdog Fantasy app, but if I didn't, I'd use that free $100 and go for a pick'em contest where I can bet the over-under on individual players or team matchups. Or maybe the Best Ball Mania 3 contest worth $10 million in total prizes. All you have to do is draft a team for the season, no waivers, no lineups, no injury reports. Underdog Fantasy takes care of all of that for you. So do what I've been doing. Go to Underdog Fantasy, download the app, sign up with promo code SBR, and get started right away with a free match on your first deposit up to $100. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our team at Sports Business Radio. Brian Griggs, Josh Blank, Ryan Nakajima, and... Our friends at CG Sports who power Sports Business Radio, CG Young, Matt Amerlin, Nicole Wardle, and Calvin Wirtz. I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports 
Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions, griggsproductions.com.